0: Are now listening to the August 19th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour we have the Screw Tape Letters Sermon and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screw Tape Letters.
1: everyone, this is Terry, the host of our program, The Screwtape Letters. We have been meditating on spiritual battles by reading through the book, The Screwtape Letters. This book was written by C.S. Lewis, known as one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century. This book is structured in the form of letters written by a seasoned devil named Screwtape to his novel, Devil Nephew Wormwood. Screwtape provides various techniques to help his nephew successfully prey on humans. Please note that the speaker in the book is a devil, so he refers to humans as Patience and calls Christ the enemy. Through this broadcast, we are reminded that we are currently engaged in a spiritual battle, and the devils are on prowl to torment us with various tactics and ultimately to pull us away from Jesus. In the previous letter, Screwtape explained how its enemy, our Christ, uses the dark time in our lives as we cross the valleys to strengthen our faith. In the ninth letter, Screwtape instructs Wormwood how to counter it. He elaborates on how to exploit the patients when they are stuck in the valley. First, he advises the use of temporary reliefs such as alcohol, drugs, and sex. These things can be effective tools since the patient is struggling, feeling down. If the patient falls for one of these traps, then he may become paralyzed emotionally and spiritually and it would be easy to ensnare his soul. This is a scary thought. As such, we have to think about whether we have been subject to this type of tactics by the devil. If we found ourselves crossing a desolate valley, we should take a moment to examine whether we might fall victim to one of these tactics as a temporary relief. Are we solely relying on the Lord and communicating with Him in prayers, or are we also relying on other things besides the Lord? As Christians, how should we cross the dark valleys? Shall we look for things that can temporarily make us forget that we are in a low point in our lives? The consistent message of this book so far is this. The devil always tries to distract us during times of suffering and pain and will do anything possible to prevent us from drawing closer to God. Instead of focusing on our emotions and psychological states while crossing the valley, we should examine God's purpose that allows us to go through the valley in our lives. We need to learn the virtues of gentleness, humility, and obedience toward God so that we can become more like Jesus. Hebrews 5.8 says that although Jesus was the Son of God, he learned obedience through suffering. If we do not actively move forward through the valley with obedience, Satan will take advantage of our negligence and throw snares at us. In other words, we need to patiently endure and walk through the valley rather than trying to shake it off. Here is an excerpt from Screwtape's letter instructing his nephew, Wormwood. Please keep in mind when Screwtape says our father, he is referring to Satan. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the time, it is his invention not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced, at time, on its ways, or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we are always trying to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain and it's better style. To get the man's soul and give him nothing in return, that is what really gladdens our father's heart. And the troughs are the time for beginning the process. As a second tactic, Screwtape advises using the patient's thoughts. Before entering into the strategy, he warns not to let wisdom or the word, namely Jesus, access the patient's mind. Especially concerning ups and downs or fluctuation in our lives, as mentioned last week, he advises preventing the patient from understanding them as something that happens to everyone. He suggests making the patient to focus on being stuck in a valley and to blame himself for not being able to sustain the emotion experienced at the time of conversation believing that it should have lasted forever and that the sense of desolation he is currently experiencing would persist indefinitely. Once this idea is fixed in the patient's mind, various maneuvers can be carried out. Two directions are presented. The first direction zeroes in on the type of person the patient is, whether he is glass half empty person or glass half full person. For the former, basically a negative and pessimistic person, it is important that he should be prevented for coming in contact with experienced Christian and should be manipulated to pick up various Bible verses in isolation which would make him feel like he is grounded in faith. This patient can be prodded to recall his previous religious emotions and to work hard to restore those emotions. When that happens, this patient is then focused on himself and his own emotions and by doing so, falls away from Christ and his true teachings. For a glass half full, the optimistic person who believes that everything will turn out well, Screwtape advises getting this patient to acknowledge the current state of spiritual low, convincing him that such a state is not a serious matter and he should be able to find some sort of balance in his life even while walking through a valley. This realization can make the patient doubt whether the deep emotions experienced at the time of conversion was excessive, and be reminded of the importance of moderation in all matters. Screwtape points out, once the patient thinks that religion should not be excessive, his soul is ready to be destroyed. For this patient, using terms like balance, harmony, moderation, and not leaning too much to the left or right can prove quite effective. The second direction basically entails a brute force approach. That is, to attack the patient's faith head on, to do that, Screwtape suggests using the patient's sense of his personal growth and fate. This patient should be made to feel he is doing well spiritually, and this low point is a phase in his spiritual journey. If the first direction was about the state of being stuck in a valley, which would continue indefinitely, the second direction highlights the transient nature of being in the valley. That would then cause the patient to trivialize the time in the valley and God's intention to help him mature as a Christian. The patient becomes indifferent to what is happening and tend to brush off things as something that would come to pass. tape reminds Wormwood, using words like stage or growth phase can be very effective. To put things in perspective, we as Christians must remember that the valleys are not just a training process that we go through, but it is a path that Christ himself has walked and one that we should follow. The devil's scheme is to trivialize the meaning of passing through the valleys as a stage or a growth phase. The patient is manipulated to put focus on himself and his state of passing through a valley. The patient views himself as a central figure trying to overcome adversities that lie in the valley, puffing up his ego and making him feel like a valiant hero with the sense of superiority And pretentiousness. Again, let us remember that the valley is not just one of the various training processes that we go through, but it is the path that Christ himself has walked and that we should follow. We should examine whether our perspective aligns with God's perspective on what it means to be in the valley. If the valley is the narrow path we must walk and God allows it in our lives, it is for the purpose of leading us to become strong and mature Christians. We should remember that the duration and timing are determined by God. Instead of asking to get us quickly past through the valley, we should pray to become closer to the Lord, who is with us even as we go through the valley. Let us not forget that in the valley, there may not be only steep cliffs towering over us with parched and jagged rocks, but there may also be clear and cool water, restful shades and beautiful flowers and trees. In closing, let us read a passage from book of Hebrews. We will resume our discussion next week. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 14. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are an illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather heal. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Amen.
0: sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Living in Light of Hell. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David.
2: Most Americans believe in heaven, according to polls, and most Americans believe they will go to heaven when they die. Interestingly, though, Most Americans don't believe in hell, and hardly anyone believes they will go there. Hell is an unpopular, almost unmentionable subject in our day. Ajith Fernando writes how Bible-believing Christians are often apologetic about the biblical doctrine of eternal divine punishment in hell He writes that Bible-believing Christians say that they wish what the Bible says about the punishment of sinners was not true, that they find it hard to accept this doctrine emotionally, but that because the Bible teaches it, they are forced to believe it. He goes on to describe how the message Christians convey to those outside the church is that the idea that multitudes of people will go to everlasting pain and punishment when they die doesn't really feel right to us, but it's what God says, so I guess we believe it. Or many Christians think, the Bible's kind of unclear about hell. What is clear is that the message of Jesus is about divine love, not divine punishment. But is that true? That's really the question, isn't it? Is hell true and real? Because if it is, so just assume for a moment that hell is true, that it is a real destination for multitudes of people, including any one of us. If that is true, then surely we would want to talk about hell. And we would invite everyone to hear about it so that we make sure we and they don't go there. It feels pretty loving to talk about hell, if it's true. Which leads us to Jesus' words in our next stop in the book of Mark. Chapter 9, verse 42. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So three times in this short passage, Jesus mentions hell. Verse 43, Verse 45 and verse 47. The point is, apparently Jesus talks pretty clearly about hell. And this is not uncommon. Jesus actually talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, which should say something to us, shouldn't it? In the words of Tim Keller, if Jesus, the Lord of love and author of grace, spoke about hell more often and in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. This means we need to think and talk about hell. We need to think and talk about hell humbly. We need to think and talk about hell as people who realize this is what we all deserve. Amen. To be sure, we were all created with nobility in the image of God for relationship with God. Yet we have all rebelled against God. It looks different in each one of our lives but we have all sinned against an infinitely holy God, which means we all deserve infinite justice. Which means we need to think and talk about hell personally, knowing that every single one of us, without exception, when we die, will either go to heaven or hell. What's interesting is the Bible never talks about hell simply to teach us generally. The Bible talks about hell to warn us personally, to repent of and run from sin, to live in righteousness and to lead others to eternal life with urgency in our hearts. Be serious about keeping others from sin. All the more so your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are married, do not lead your spouse to sin. Be serious about keeping them from sin. If you are a parent, be serious about keeping your children from sin. Do not be found in any way causing them, either intentionally or unintentionally, to sin. This is consistent with the traits we talk about of a church, biblical fellowship, caring for one another, watching out for each other, biblical accountability and discipline, even lovingly confronting one another in sin. Take these traits seriously. If you cause another to sin, it would be better for you to die by drowning with a stone hung around your neck, Jesus says. And then the language gets even more graphic in regard to keeping yourself from sin, second thing Jesus says here, be serious about keeping yourself from sin. If your hand causes you to sin, here's what you do. Cut it off. Why? Because it'd be better for you to end your life crippled with one hand than with two hands to go to hell. Now we know, based on the rest of the Bible... Specifically, even commands against bodily mutilation. This is not literal language from Jesus. And we also know that even if you only have one hand, you'll still be tempted to sin. Nowhere in scripture does God say, if you'll just lose a part, body part, you will be sinless. This is symbolic language intended by Jesus to be shocking in its effect. Whatever is precious to you, your hand or your foot or your eye no matter how important they are for you to have which arguably are all pretty important there were nowhere near as important as you having life having the kingdom of God your spiritual life is worth the sacrifice of your physical life So take drastic measures, Jesus says, to stay away from sin because sin is deadly. It keeps you from life. Write it down. Mark it down. Sin is deadly. Sin is always, 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 always deadly. Sin always, no matter how small you might think it is, sin keeps you from life. Look at the world around us. all the evil and injustice and suffering and death. This is where sin leads in the world. This is where sin leads in our lives. And ultimately, not just in the world. Where does sin lead? It leads to, well, go back to verse 43, to hell. To the unquenchable fire. To hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not Jesus is warning us here with the reality of hell. So what is it? So what is a biblical definition of hell? The word Jesus uses for hell here in Mark 9 is Gehenna. It's a reference to a deep valley on the south side of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Old Testament, we read about this valley being a place where idolatrous offerings and sacrifices were made to false gods, including human sacrifices. Jeremiah 7 describes it as a valley of slaughter with burning bodies. And here in Mark 9, when we see where the worm does not die, fire is not quenched, that's a quote from the very last verse in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So Gehenna referred to a place where the fire never goes out continues on day after day after day. And worms that feast on carcasses never lack anything to devour. That's the language Jesus uses to describe where sin leads. This is not the only language he uses. Matthew chapter 13 Verse 41 and 42, where Jesus says the Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Luke 16, Jesus describes the anguish of flames in hell. He calls it a place of torment. And this is on top of other descriptions of hell in the Bible. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 describes the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Revelation 20, verse 15 describes a lake of fire where, Revelation chapter 14, people are tormented with fire and sulfur. In the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Jonathan Edwards envisioned this scene in many ways. I'll share just one lengthy quote from one of his one of his most famous sermons, a sermon that would be pretty out of style today. He said, to help your conception, imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven, all of a glowing heat, or into the midst of a blowing brick kiln, or of a great furnace, where your pain would be as much greater than that occasioned by accidentally touching a coal of fire as the heat is greater. Imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour full of fire, as full within and without as a bright coal of fire, all the while full of quick sense. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? And how long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? If it were to be measured by a glass, how long would the glass seem to be running? And after you had endured it for one minute, how overbearing would it be for you to think that you had yet to endure the other 14? But what would be the effect on your soul if you knew you must lie there enduring that torment to the full for 24 hours? And how much greater would be the effect if you knew you must endure it for a whole year? And how vastly greater still if you knew you must endure it for a 1,000 years? Oh, then how would your heart sink if you thought, if you knew that you must bear it forever and ever, that there would be no end, that after millions of millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end than ever it was, and that you should never, never be delivered. But your torment in hell will be immeasurably greater than this illustration represents. Again, if this is true, then we need to talk about this. Amen. And we should want people to hear about this. Yes. Right? Yes. All of this, though, obviously, immediately leads to the question in many people's minds is all this language about fire and sulfur literal? Or is it figurative? Is it symbolic? Is hell a literal lake of fire? Or is that just symbolic language Do people actually burn in hell and I don't know this language could be literal many pictures of judgment in the Bible from fire and sulfur raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah to plague after plague in Egypt these were quite literal but this language could also be symbolic People I've quoted, like Jonathan Edwards and Tim Keller, believe it is. But even if that's true, it's not very comforting, is it? If fire and burning and torment are symbols, then what are they symbols for? A nice vacation? Happy hunting grounds? The whole purpose of a symbol is to try and express in words a reality that cannot be expressed in words. It should bring no comfort to think that maybe the Bible's language here is symbolic. For that would mean it's worse than how it sounds. Are we hearing this? People say things like, that was a hell of a game. We had a hell of a time. And kids, don't ever say that. And When you hear an adult say it, respectfully tell them they don't have a clue what they're talking about, what they're trifling with in their language. Hell is the place of dreadful, conscious, never-ending judgment for sinners. Amen! And as unpopular and politically incorrect as it is to say this, multitudes of people will go there. Which leads us to the good news of the Bible, the greatest news in the world that we want to shout everywhere. It's why we want to invite people to church. And I'm glad every single one of you is here today because God himself does not want you or anyone to go to hell. This is why John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Do you know for sure that you will go to heaven, have eternal life when you die? And most people in response say, I think so. At which point I ask, well, what makes you think so? And the answer is usually some form of, I think I've lived a good life. My good outweighs my bad. And there are two major red flags with that response. Red flag number one, in light of the horror of hell, do you really want to go into eternity holding on to a, I think so? I don't I want to know where I'm going. If that's possible, I want to know. and It is, which is why I then say, you, you can know where you're going. God says it, 1 John five thirteen. I write these things so you may know you have eternal life. You can know it. But that then leads to red flag number two. When you think about your good outweighing your bad, because no matter how good you are and how much good you do, you still have sin in your heart. Against a holy God, an infinitely holy God, which means you still deserve just and righteous, infinite justice. As a just judge, the just judge over overall, God does not, cannot, overlook sin. The first step to being saved from hell, is realizing you deserve hell and realizing that on your own, no matter how much good you do, you cannot save yourself from sin and hell. But this is the beauty of God's love for the world, God's love for you. He loves you so much that he has given his only son that's Jesus, And Jesus has done what you could never do. Jesus has lived the life you could not live, a life of no sin. And then, even though he had no sin for which to die, Jesus died the death you deserve to die. He went to a cross to pay the price for your sin. He died for your sin. And then... The good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death. Jesus has lived the life you could not live. He's died the death you deserve to die. And he conquered the enemy you could not conquer. Sin and death. So that whoever you are, no matter what you've done, how much good or bad, doesn't matter. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. First John 5 13, I write these things to you who believe, same word, in the name of the Son of God, that you may what? That you may what? Know that you have eternal life. You can know it. How? By believing. Now obviously that's that's more than just intellectual. Okay, I know about Jesus. Or I believe Jesus died on the cross. Demons believe that. And they're they're gonna be in hell forever. Question is, do you believe? Do you trust? And Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life. Amen. To every person within the sound of my voice right now, I urge you, believe in him. Amen. Believe in him. Trust in him. Choose life, eternal life today by trusting in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. God loves you. God's brought you to this moment to hear this good news. He's speaking to your heart right now. Don't toy with sin. Toy with eternity. Trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life. Amen. Don't wait another day. Don't go another moment. About choosing life by trusting in Him. And then, then when you do, then lay down your life every day in light of what matters in eternity. Amen. Now it makes sense. Like, yes. So be serious about keeping yourself and others from sin. Why? Because sin in your life and sin in others' lives is deadly because sin leads to dreadful, conscious, never-ending suffering. And you've been saved from it. So stop flirting with it and giving in to it. Take drastic measures to keep yourself from sin. And by all means, don't lead anyone else to sin. Lay down your life every day. And I use this language intentionally. Because of the language Jesus uses, starting in verse 49 of Mark 9. I've never understood this language about salt and fire. For everyone to be salted with fire. I've always thought, well, that, what, what just happened? Salt, fire, salt is good. We're just talking about hell. What does this mean to be salted with fire? And Studying this this week, it was so fascinating, so helpful. Because you look back in the Old Testament, and you just, you see how God described his people's offerings and worship. Look at this with me. Leviticus 2, verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with what? With salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt, and the priest shall burn it as an offering to the Lord. Salted with fire. The whole picture here is a grain offering, an offering, of dedication of your resources to God. Season it with salt and burn it. And in this picture of an offering that is pleasing to God, Jesus is taking that now in Mark 9. Everyone will be salted with fire. The whole picture is Jesus saying. I want to close by leading us in prayer. But before I do, I, I simply want to ask you a few personal, just Practical questions. So here here's the questions. First and foremost, number one, do you know for sure that you have eternal life and will go to heaven when you die? And if not, I'm going to invite you in just a moment to make this the day, this the moment when you trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life. Walk away from here today knowing you have eternal life. Second question, what, what sin do you need to repent of today? What drastic measures is God leading you to take to keep yourself from sin? So God is clearly saying to us today, sin is serious, sin is deadly. And He has lovingly brought you to this moment. As you think about sin in your life, He is lovingly saying, Repent. Turn from it. That's deadly. It's dangerous. He's lovingly calling you to repentance. What drastic measures do you need to take in order to keep yourself from sin? And third, in what ways are you leading others to sin? How is God leading you to change that? So stop and just ask the question, is there any way, either intentionally or unintentionally, you're leading others to sin? Just ask that, either actively or maybe with your passivity. And how is God leading you to change that? Fourth, What are a couple of few practical ways you can be like salt in others' lives this week, showing the life and love of Jesus to people around you? How is God calling you to be distinct in your school, in your workplace, where you live, where you work, people you're around, in your home? Then a couple more. How is God leading you to pursue peace with any brothers or sisters in Christ? Are there any relationships You have with other Christians where there's conflict or tension or division. To the extent that you are able, go to them and pursue peace with them. For their good, for your good, and for the good of a world filled with people going to hell who need to be reached for the gospel. Which leads to the last question. Who is God leading you to share the gospel with this week? It would make no sense. For us to talk about an eternal hell in God's Word today. And then walk into a city this week filled with people who are on a road that leads there. And not tell anybody. Not warn anybody. And share with somebody how much God loves them. And he gave His one and only Son to die for them so they won't perish they have eternal life so just would you just right now can you just picture the people that you will see this week picture somebody that you'll see this week who doesn't know Jesus and just pray for that person and pray for boldness and compassion to share the gospel with them this week to go up to them and say do you know that for sure that you have eternal life we will go to heaven when you die or however you want to lead into it but just share this good news with someone. God's given it to you we live in a city surrounded by people what if we all did this God would l- use our lives to lead people to eternal life this week this is who we are, what we do as the church we don't just come and sit and listen to the word and kind of move on with our lives Like this is what we do let's give our lives to this and, and see what, what God does to bring people to eternal life through us
1: listening to unity in Christ the English hour in our broadcast program here at heart and soul gospel ministries we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ since 2000 we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting we are always encouraged to hear from you so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share Please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcast on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org.
0: The following program is called Equipping the Saints.
3: Hello, heart and soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Let's look at Revelation 19. This is where we see the battle of Armageddon, where Christ comes and defeats his enemies. He's going to deal out retribution. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. By the way, I'm sharing the truth with you about what's going to happen in the future from God's Word. I hope you listen. He says here, Faithful and True, because someday you'll go, wow, that was true. I wish I would have believed, because now I'm in torment. And righteous, he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and is written upon his name no one knows except himself. And he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven come assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings the flesh of commanders the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men both free men and slaves small and great and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army and the beast was seized along with the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped the image. And these were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. God is angry at sin. He has indignation every day. But he's gracious. He's not going to do this until the time is up. There's a time of salvation now. But he is going to take back what is rightfully his on that day. We see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8 that when the lawless ones revealed that the Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth. And bring an end to him with the appearance of his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2 8. An end of the Antichrist. Look at 1 Thessalonians. We saw it here also. God's sharing it in a lot of places. There is a future judgment. Now, we see God's judgment upon the world and those who were in it at that time. Those who have passed away will also be at the great white throne judgment seat judged for their sins. as we'll say. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anyone to be written to you. Hey, you, should, you already know this, believers. Three weeks in the faith and they knew this. You've been a believer for more than three weeks. You should be knowing this. You should read through 1 Thessalonians. He says, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then notice what it says, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains upon a woman, and they shall not escape. One last passage I want to share about the day of the Lord. Turn to Isaiah 13. This is Yahweh's day, the Lord's day. Man is having his day right now in rebellion, and yet there's a remnant being saved, but Yahweh will have his day. He will take back what is rightfully his. And in that day, He's going to bring relief. He's going to bring punishment to those who have rejected Him. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Wail, well, for the day the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them, and they will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven, their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold, mankind than the gold of Ophir. God is mad at sin, and he will bring his judgment. This is his judgment physically upon the earth. Those who would be there, for instance, if the Lord was to come today for the church and take us away, there'd be seven years, and when Christ comes at the end of that, this is when this happens. Ultimately, our persecution will end with the coming of Christ because those who persecuted will be taken out of the way. It's ultimately then. Now, we're delivered before that, but it's seen together. So back in our passage, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction. Verse 6, those who afflict you and give relief to you are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's when the ultimate relief comes, when sinners no longer can exercise their will on this earth. The ladies have been going through this in James chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. God's going to deal with sin. People say, how could God let all this evil go on? Mocking him, really what they're saying. And they don't understand the only reason he's not doing this to that evil is because he's saving people. And if he was to come and judge, he would have to judge them before they were saved. He's not one that any should perish. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient and strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Well, what's going to happen when he comes? What's going to happen? Look at verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dealing out retribution. That means giving or meeting out, literally the word vengeance. Remember we said, the scripture reveals, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Don't return evil for evil. Leave it in God's hand. Leave room for the wrath of God. It will come. This term vengeance speaks of retributive justice. Verse 9, this retributive justice ultimately has to do with, look at it, paying the penalty of eternal destruction for your sins, as we'll see in hell, because you haven't come into a relationship with Jesus. He's now going to talk about the retribution to all who have rejected Christ, in which the persecutors are a smaller piece of that. But yet, as we see, those who don't know Christ, when the restraints are off, they all, in a sense, persecute. What happened to Jesus? Eventually, all the non-believers in Jerusalem said, crucify him. The restraints were off. So who is this against? There's two different groups. It seems like, but I think we're going to see they're the same. Those who do not know God, verse 8, retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I studied this, this is not two separate groups. This is actually one group described two different ways. We see that from Scripture. You see, the reality is, those who don't know God speaks of those who don't have a real relationship with the living God. Now, there are some that say they do. They have a full relationship, and they say, Lord, I know you, and they think they do. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice law. So you're still in your sin. You're still sinning without a heart that sees it as wrong, without a heart that needs forgiveness. Depart from me, I never knew you. Those who don't know God, there's no relationship The Apostle Paul shared with the Galatians, Galatians 4, verse 8, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things by nature are no gods. There was a time when you didn't know God. But now you have come to know God, rather be known by him. And that's through Galatians 1 that God came to die for our sins, to deliver us from this present evil age. So how do we come to know God? How do I come to know him? Do I just try to search him on my own? How do I do that? How does one come to know in a relationship the living God? Look at First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians one. God has ordained it because man's problem is sin and pride, and man even tries to come to God with his own pride and sin, and so God has chosen the foolishness of something to shame the wise. First Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. You can't come to know Him through your own wisdom. Try to figure it out. Try to do it your way every, you know, add your little stuff in here and there. It's not going to happen because God is eviscerating pride through the gospel. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. We come to know God through the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ took on human flesh. God took on human flesh. And He lived the perfect life. And He died for our sins. We are sinful. We are in need of salvation. We need to humble ourselves, see our sin rightly. If you're saved from your view of your sin rather than His view of your sin, you're not saved. It's His view of your sin. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the gospel. You see, the wages of sin is death. We're separated from God. We don't know Him. We don't have a relationship with Him. Isaiah says your sin has caused a separation between you and God, so he doesn't hear. His arm's not so short. His ear's not so clogged. He can't hear. But your sin's in the way. That's those who don't know God. And then he says, and explains it in peril in a different way, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus You see, the gospel is the good news. I just explained it. And obedience is synonymous with belief. You see, if Jesus says to you in his word, repent, like you said in Mark 1.15, repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Jesus said that. If he tells you, God tells you, declares to all men everywhere in his word that you must repent, because he's fixed a day in which he's going to judge, if you reject that, you're disobeying the gospel and you will receive the penalty that we will look at. The penalty of eternal destruction. So it's important to realize he's not just saying just those persecutors there are going to get this. He's saying that everybody who doesn't know him and everybody who doesn't obey the gospel, the two in this together, the same thing from a different perspective. And what will this retribution look like? Let's finish up here. Verse 9, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is a terrifying statement. I pray you're not like the rich man in Luke 16 who was saying, go send Lazarus to my family to warn them about this. It was true, but no opportunity to repent at that time. If someone comes from the dead, they'll repent, he said. And Father Abram said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to." He says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. The term pay the penalty means just that. It's the penalty for rejecting Christ. And that's manifest in their persecution, right? They're going to be paid for that. The term eternal destruction, eternal means forever. The term destruction doesn't mean annihilation. It means complete ruin. You see, you have the will. You can stand up and walk out here. You can do whatever you want. You can sin all you want. You have the will to sin against God. You can do it all you want. You will be restrained in punishment from sinning in that sense, it's exercising your own will forever and ever and ever. Complete ruin. Eternal ruin. You can reject Christ all you want, but someday you will go to a complete ruin. You'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction And that happens in the eternal flame. Jesus talks about hell. He calls it an eternal flame that was prepared for the devil and his angels. End of Matthew 25. In Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, he talks about being cast into eternal fire, and in parallel, he says, into fiery hell. In Matthew 25, verse 41, he shares, Then I will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus shares in Matthew 5.22, if you're angry with your brother, as evidenced by your words, you shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Matthew 5.29-30 talks about the whole body being thrown into hell. Matthew 10.28, and do not fear those, Jesus says, who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. He speaks of the Pharisees' inability to escape the sentence of hell, Matthew 23:33. In Mark 9:43 respectively, he speaks of going to hell in parallel with the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What about Luke 12:15, I warn you to fear the one who after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. I tell you yes, fear him. Jude and Peter speak of black darkness which is reserved for those false teachers who are going to hell. It's a black darkness Revelation chapter 20 speaks of the second death, the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. And everyone whose name was not written in the land's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. How's your name in the land's book of life? Earlier in Revelation, you overcome. How do we overcome? First John 5, through faith in Jesus Christ. Earlier in Revelation 14, speaking of those who would receive the mark. He says they will be tormented with fire and brimstone and their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest. Same place. So back in our passage, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. You know, you get to experience the blessing of Christ in people who know him around you. The goodness of God, even though you may not accept it. The grace of God. You'll be separated from him forever and ever and away from the glorious passages of his power. Everything that is glorious about God that we will enjoy forever, you will be separated from. You will not experience it. You'll be punished in torment, black darkness, for rejecting God's provision of salvation for your sins, for not obeying the gospel. That's what God says. Do you want to go there? Play games with God. Reject the conviction of his word concerning your sin and the Savior. Choose to see your sin from your perspective rather than his and you're on your way. Choose to see God in a different way than God reveals Himself in the Word, and you're on your way. Try to come to God through your own means rather than by faith in Christ, and you're on your way. So why hasn't this happened yet? God is patient, not willing for any to perish. Second Peter, but the day of the Lord will come. But what will that like be for us, for believers? Notice as we finish verse 10. When He comes to be glorified in His saints... On that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. It's gonna be glorious. Peter talks about it, that when we see him, we'll rejoice with joy inexpressible. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 5 speaks of his holy ones coming with him when he comes. You see, we will be taken out of here to be with him where he's prepared a place. And then when he comes back, we will be with him because we're gonna be with him forever. And we will be with him. And we will experience that day the glory of His coming. And it says here, when He comes to be glorified in His saints, we're going to enter into that glory somehow. Remember Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. That's what he's talking about. Then you will be revealed with Him in glory. I don't understand it, but it's going to be glorious. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, it's going to be glorious. We're on the winning team because of Christ. Sin, evil, rebellion, wickedness will have been defeated. Christ will take back what is rightfully His. It's glorious. But not for those who will be paying the penalty of eternal destruction. But it will be glorious for us. And notice He says, and to be marveled among all who believe. We will marvel. We'll marvel at our Savior coming back to do everything He's promised. We'll marvel at this. And why will that happen? Because, he says here, for our testimony to you was believed. Our testimony from the Word of God that we shared with you, Thessalonians. You believed it. Therefore, you're going to be with Him and you're going to marvel at it. Yes, it's difficult now. You're being persecuted. But your endurance is a sign it's a manifestation that those who don't know him will be judged and that you will be relieved and we will see him and come with him back in glory and marvel at and taking back what is rightfully his. you got to remember that. The victory is in Jesus forever.